When it comes to uh, health problems uh, and doctors, we all have a different approach, I would assume. Uh, even in my household, Katie and I have a different approach to health problems and doctors. And one approach is to experience health difficulties and then to kind of deny that you have them like that. Like, you know, it's, it's probably nothing or it's not a big deal. Kind of like, you know, denying that there's uh, anything wrong with you. And the person, this person never goes uh, to see the doctor unless a limb is missing or there's no pulse. You know, we can take care of this with, you know, some Advil and a Band-Aid or duct tape or something like that. And there's no reason to go to the doctor. So, uh, you know, you don't have to raise your hand. But how many, you think to yourself, how many do you take this approach? Is this your approach to doctors? Another approach is to recognize you have a health problem and try to solve it yourself. Like maybe going on the internet, uh, these are my symptoms, and trying to f figure out, okay, this is, I think this is what I have. Then maybe even talking to friends, like, okay, this is what I think I have. Oh, I know this friend had that. What did you do to, to get, you know, to solve that? And what did you, how did you get that um, issue fixed? Um, and people with this approach maybe think, you know, the doctor isn't going to tell me anything that I can't find on my own. And they're just going to prescribe drugs. And I'd rather figure it out, you know, a more natural solution or some other solution um, by myself. I'm not going to spend the money or take the time. Um, and maybe uh, it's just that you don't like drugs, or maybe you are untrusting of doctors, or maybe some other reason too. But if you have a health issue, uh, this approach tries to solve it uh, themselves um, instead of going to a doctor. And so do you take this approach? Is this your approach to health problems and doctors? And the third approach is to experience a health issue make an appointment to the doctor, and go see the doctor, listen to them, give you a diagnosis, and then say, okay, this is what you need to do to help with that health problem, uh, and then leave and don't do what they said. So this approach makes the appointment, goes to the doctor, hears their diagnosis, gets what they're supposed to do, but then leaves and doesn't do it. Maybe it's like, ah, oh, you know what, I just forget, or I don't really like uh, doing what they said, don't want to take the medicine. Um, for whatever reason, this type of person goes to the doctor, and doesn't do uh, what they say. Um, maybe you'll get the problem, but not uh, follow the solution. And so is this your approach to doctors? And what's important to see is that none of these three approaches benefit from the doctor. All of them have a health problem. There's the doctor available. You know, put aside right now whatever your maybe opinions are on doctors and how you know, effective they are. If you maybe are like, oh, I wouldn't go to the doctor because they're not gonna help me. Well, let's just assume doctors are helpful. None of these people um, would benefit from the doctor. None of those three approaches benefit. All three have a health problem, but do not benefit from the health of a doctor. And the fourth approach is sensing I have a health problem, make an appointment with the doctor, having the doctor diagnose it, and they say, you need to do this to fix this health problem, and then you leave and you do what they said. Uh, this person is the only one who actually benefits from the doctor, uh, doctor's expertise and their, and their knowledge. And they're the ones who both get a diagnosis and a treatment from the doctor. And of all four approaches, this is the only one that the doctor helps. So, but if we switch from considering our approach to health problems to considering our approach to spiritual problems, uh, which one would you say is how you approach spiritual problems? You know, when you see sin in your life, or when you see selfishness in your life, or when you aren't treating others as you should, or when you're, you know, just, you know, maybe grumpy or cranky, uh, impatient, you know, lacking compassion, what do you do with that spiritual problem? Which approach of these do you take? Do you deny it exists? You know, it's not that big of a deal. Just deny it exists and keep going on with the spiritual problem. Do you try to solve the problem yourself? Like, I need to figure this out. I need to read more. I need to do more. And I can, you know, solve this problem myself. 
Or do you bring those problems to God to say, God, I just need some help with this. And you, then you walk away and you don't do what he says to get better. Maybe you, you pray and you say, I'm supposed to do this. Or you read the Bible and you say, I'm supposed to do that. And you're like, ah, you know, I'm just going to continue on um, and hope it gets better on its own. Or do you go to God to receive both the diagnosis and the treatment? And today we're continuing the sermon series in the Gospel according to Luke, and where we're seeing uh, an up-close picture of who Jesus is and what it means to be a disciple. And the word disciple, uh, it basically means learner, uh, someone who's learning. But we shouldn't think of disciple as a learner in the sense that you go to a classroom and then you just hear a lecture and you get all this information that you're supposed to store up in your head and there's going to be a quiz later. That's not the type of learner that... A disciple is. It's not a learning where you're taking notes and reading books and writing papers and taking tests. And surely the disciples uh, in the first century were learning from Jesus. They're hearing him speak, they're hearing him preach, they're hearing him uh, teach on things. And so they're learning that, they're getting information. Um, but it's much less about information and more about a, a whole life transformation. Because when uh, the disciples became disciples of Jesus, it wasn't like, okay, show up at 8 a.m., and we're going to have a lecture for two hours, uh, and then, you know, make sure you keep notes and study, and then I'm going to test you on it later. That isn't what they did. Jesus said, follow me. And so becoming a disciple of Jesus, or a learner of Jesus, was more than just information. It was about a life transformation. They reoriented their lives around Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is, what he does, and he was at the center of their learning process. And so when we think about what it means to be a disciple, a better image than you know, student in college or student in high school or whatever uh, is more thinking of an apprentice. So if you wanted to become a plumber, uh, you would need to apprentice with somebody. At least this is how I understand the, the profession, is that you need to apprentice with somebody, and you're going to work with them, you're seeing what they do, they're explaining what they're doing, and you're doing this on-the-job training, you're, and your life is, kind of, is attached to theirs instead of being uh, just... Oh, okay, I'm going to memorize all this stuff in class, and then I can be a plumber. Same way with becoming a doctor. You don't just memorize all this stuff, but you have you know, residency and time where you're actually sitting and watching somebody else do it, and, they're, uh, and learning that way. So you watch what they do. You help them. You get a chance to do it while under their supervision. And an apprentice is a closer view of what it means to be a disciple uh, than to think of being uh, just a student in the class. And a Dallas Willard, who was a philosopher and teacher, had a definition of what it means to be a disciple that summarizes this idea well. He said, a disciple is someone called to three things, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. So to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. And Jesus is bringing people into his life so they can be with him, so they can start becoming like him. And so they can do what he's doing. That's what he sends his disciples out to do. Go, go make more disciples. I've done it with you. Now go make more. And so, but if Jesus is at the center of this whole process of discipleship, of learning uh, to be with Jesus, to become like him and do what he did, now that means we, what we think about Jesus is extremely important. Who do you think he is? What, if you were to answer that, what, who is he? What is he like? And I don't mean what you would answer on, like, if I gave you, like, a test. You know, tell me what you know about Jesus. Tell me, you know, the stuff in your head that you know about Jesus. This is more like, um, what do we, we think he's like as a, a person? Not in, How does he interact with us? And how does he treat us? How does he deal with us? And when we mess up, what is our immediate emotional reaction? Um, do we think he's, you know, 
despising us and pushing us away, and we can see that. But, well, on the theology exam I'm taking, I'm saying, no, Jesus always loved me, but when I sin or I mess up or I fail, I act. We, that's what really comes out of what we believe about Jesus, is now I'm running away from him, I'm not talking to him, I'm trying to make it better through my good works. That's what we really think about him uh, in our deepest hearts, and not just our mental thoughts. And so what do we think he's like? When you sin, what is your image of him? When you're weak and needy, what do you do? How do you react? How do you think he responds to you? And in this passage, Jesus is going to give us two images for himself that we can put in our minds like, this is what Jesus is like towards me. Uh, and we can get down to it at an emotional heart level and start working on this is what Jesus looks like. And so the two images he uses are doctor and a groom, or the bridegroom it's called. So let's first look at the doctor in uh, verses 27 and 28. Those verses say this, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And we saw uh, just a few um, weeks ago that this is that Jesus does kind of the same thing to Peter. He doesn't exactly say, Follow me, but he says, uh, I'll make you into fishers of men. And then Peter, uh, Simon, and his three other uh, companions uh, get up and they leave everything and they follow after him. And so what they do is they're reorienting their priorities around Jesus. This, this relationship is now at the center. He leaves his job uh, and says, okay, I'm going to leave the tax booth you know, unattended. He just says, follow me. And he goes along and follows Jesus. Then verses 29 through 32 uh, show us that Levi um, and many believe that um, he was also called Matthew, and so this was the writer of the Gospel according to Matthew, this man right here we're reading about. Um, 29, verse 29 says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And so Levi throws this huge party, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And he, Levi makes a way for his friends and colleagues to meet Jesus. It's like, I've met this guy, now it's time, this is great, I'm following him, let's throw a party. Um, and Jesus can be my guest of honor. And the people Levi invites uh, shows whom he associates with. It says tax collectors and others. And then later, uh, the Pharisees and scribes will say tax collectors and sinners. It's like, okay, Levi is not hanging out with the best crowd, according to the religious teachers, but it's like tax collectors uh, would make friends with other tax collectors because not a lot of people like tax collectors. So you had to become friends with each other. And it says they're reclining at table and they didn't have like you know tables that are like this high. Uh, they're like more like low tables, and you'd kind of like you'd lean towards them. You'd be on the ground leaning towards them. That's why it's called reclining at the table. So they're all around this table to eat. And what we're told uh, in verse uh, 30 is says this: and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, "Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?" And grumbling, that word can take us back uh, to the Old Testament, that uh, the people of Israel grumbled about Moses in the, in the wilderness. They're complaining about Moses, complaining, which then Moses says, you're complaining about God. You're grumbling against God. This is rebellion and unbelief and disobedience uh, against God. You're grumbling about how you don't think he's taking care of you or how you think he's doing things wrong. And, the, and then eventually those people aren't allowed to enter the promised land. They're grumbling against God about what God is like and whether God can be trusted, if he's in, thinking in their best interest, if he loves them. And so they're grumbling 
just like those people in the Old Testament about what they're seeing here. And the Pharisees and scribes ask his disciples, you know, they don't ask Jesus directly, but they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what's the big deal here? Why do they care so much about you know, eating with, drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Like, do you guys avoid you know, the IRS or something like that? People that are like collecting your taxes? Maybe you do, I don't know. Um, but the Pharisees, they didn't have an official authority. They weren't like this group that the nation of Israel appointed. But they had influence authority in the sense that they had uh, a deep knowledge of the law and they were a law of Moses and they were trying to apply it to daily life. And so that's where their uh, influence came from. And the word Pharisee means the separated one. Uh, so these are people that separate themselves. They separate from things that are sinful and unclean. They had compartments for all things in life and they're like, this is, we're, in, we're staying in the clean and righteous compartment and we don't go in the other compartments with the people who are sinners, the people who are unclean. And they're concerned with two things, the law of God and the kingdom of God. And the law of God is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it gives these laws for how the people of Israel are supposed to uh, be holy, how they're supposed to worship God, how they're supposed to uh, take care of their sin, they're supposed to offer sacrifices if they do sin, they're supposed to separate from things that are clean and unclean. And so they were very concerned with how do we keep this law of God? And they helped people by applying it to daily life. They wanted to bring uh, the ritual purity laws and the moral codes into people's daily life so that we can live according to what God says. And if we do that, then the kingdom of God will come. If we keep the law of God, the kingdom of God will come. God will come back to his people just like he promised. He left because we were sinful and unrighteous and unclean, and he will come back if we show ourselves to be Righteous, And when he does, we want to be in that compartment. We don't want to be in this other category of sinful people and unrighteous. And these tax collectors and sinners, in their view, are not right with God. Therefore, do not associate with them. They are in a different category than you. They're in a different compartment. And tax collectors, we talked about it back in Luke 3 when John was, Baptist was preaching. But tax collectors had a bad reputation, whether it was the Rome, in the Gentile, the non-Jewish world, or the Jewish world, but especially in the Jewish world, uh, they were seen as um, uh, traitors who have allied themselves with the Romans. It's like these Romans took over our land, and now you're helping them tax us. What are you? What are you doing? Like you are betraying your own people by becoming the, a tax collector, uh, helping the Romans out, and they make their money by uh, off of their own people. They're thought of as snoops, corrupt, dishonest, and abusing power. And they had this big social stigma that goes along with them. You know, think about people that you might see and be like, whoa, that's someone that we need to keep away from. It's like people have a social stigma around them where it's like they're just, those are bad people that don't even get to know their characters. Like those people are just, you know, bad. And that's what they had around them. And so, and they all had necessary contact with Gentiles, Roman soldiers or people they're taxing. And so that possibly made them unclean. You could get, become unclean in terms of uh, the rituals of the Old Testament by interacting with uh, people who weren't Jewish. And for these reasons, the Pharisees and scribes cannot believe what they're seeing, that Jesus would come to a party and recline with these people and eat with them and drink with them. What is he doing? Like, this guy uh, is a teacher. And if he's teaching the law like we're teaching the law, he should know you shouldn't be with those people. You should know what they're like. You should not associate with them. 
What is he doing hanging around with these tax collectors and other sinners? What kind of company is he keeping? These people of bad reputation. These are not the sort of people a teacher should be hanging around with. We should be focused on being righteous and holy and clean and set apart and don't associate with them. And meals at a home in this day were a more of a public event. And so it wasn't like, you know, if I had one of you guys over for a meal, it wouldn't be like, you know, it's just us. It's more of a public thing. Like, people know about it. You can see it. And so the Pharisees and scribes are observing what's happening. And what this is a picture of is Jesus, the Son of God, announcing the kingdom of God. And through his actions, he's giving a picture of what that kingdom looks like. Jesus eats and associates with the lowest of the low. He welcomes them into his presence. He hangs out with those that others despise and reject. And the Pharisees see this picture and they don't like it. That's not the picture of the kingdom that they have in their minds. And Jesus addresses the Pharisees and their scribes, giving them the why behind his eating and his drinking. He says to them, Those who are well, verse 31, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And Heather read for us uh, from Ezekiel 34. And Ezekiel 34, it begins with God telling the shepherds of Israel, those who are supposed to be leading and guiding and protecting the people, saying, you have not bound up the weak, you have not helped the sick, you have not sought the lost, you have not done all these things that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be taking care of the sheep instead of you're just abusing them and you're taking their wool and you're just using them for money. You're not taking care of those who are sick and weak and needy and lost. And God just you know, rebukes them. And then the part Heather read for us earlier is that then God says, I myself will search for the sheep and seek them out. He says he himself will bring back the lost He'll bring back the stray. He'll bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. And so, but then eventually it says, uh, God is saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You failed, so I'm going to do this. And eventually says, my servant David will do this. It's like, wait, okay, wait a second. Is God going to do it? Or is the Davidic king who's in the line of David going to do it? Is it going to be the Messiah? That's who he's talking about when you say, your servant of David. Uh, is it going to be the Messiah or is it going to be God? Is it going to be this human or is it going to be God? And then what we find is Jesus is now saying, I'm taking on the role uh, that Israel's God always promised he would take on. He's going to seek the lost. He's going to find the strength. He's going to bind up the weak. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to come and strengthen all these uh, sheep that are struggling. Jesus says, I'm now fulfilling what the God of Israel promised to do. And he's also the servant in the line of David. He's playing the role of Israel's God. He's playing the role of Israel, uh, the servant of God, David, whom he said he would set up over a sheep as one shepherd. And then Jesus further defines what he means in verse 32. We might be like, okay, he's just finding sick people who are coughing. Well, no, he defines what he means in verse 32. I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are well are defined as righteous. And some translations even put quotes around this, like the righteous... Um, people who are thinking they're righteous. Uh, but Jesus is mostly focusing on the people he's seeking out. He's not focusing on them, rebuking people who think they're righteous and well. Those who are sick are defined as sinners. What Jesus does is he calls them to repentance. And repentance is, uh, you can just think of it as like making a U-turn, turning around. You're going one way, you're living this way, you're doing things this way, you're believing this. I'm going to repent, I'm going to turn around, 
And then belief is often, I'm turning to something. I'm turning from that, and I'm turning to this. That's what repentance and belief are about. And he says, this is telling us, Jesus says, he's the physician. And he's the doctor. So how is the doctor able to help us? Well, the only way the doctor can help us is if we're sick, and we're willing to acknowledge we're sick, and go to the doctor for the healing of that sickness. You not only have to be sick, but you have to acknowledge that you're sick. And you not only have to acknowledge that you're sick, but you have to turn to the doctor who can make you well. That's repentance. How have you been trying to make your well, yourself well and healthy up until now? You've been trying to do it your own way. You've been living, or you've just been living in sin and sick, the sickness of sin, and don't care about it. If you want it to be different, you have to turn to, you have to repent and turn to the doctor who can make you well. And repentance is not just stop doing bad things and start doing good things. You know, it's like, okay, I'm sick and I want to be well. I just need to start doing healthy things. Well, no. uh, When you don't just stop doing bad things and start doing good things, that's not what repentance is. That's part of repentance. But at the core of repentance is turning to the one who can make you well, who can make you different, who you can actually want to become like and start doing the things that he did. And so it's turning to, from my self-reliance, my self-righteousness, my, my ways of trying to do this myself, and I'm turning to God as the one who has the treatment and the cure, Jesus, the doctor. So Jesus is looking for people who are sick, who, people who are sinners, and he will accept them just as they are, but he's also calling them to repentance. Wherever you're at, you can repent. And it doesn't matter how bad you are, but it does mean turning from your current ways of trying to do life your current ways of trying to be healthy, your current ways of trying to find fulfillment and value or whatever it is. And Levi was called to follow Jesus. Peter and his associates were called to be fishers of men. And they're summoned to this new allegiance, this new loyalty, this new priority in their lives. And Jesus is calling them out of their sin sickness into a relationship with him. He's granting them belonging in his presence, in his kingdom, with each other and with God. It doesn't matter what your situation in life is. Or your, or your level of righteousness, what matters is your response to Jesus. Your response to Jesus depends on whether you see yourself as sick and in need of him. And so going back, we'll just pause for a moment, and we'll talk more about this at the end. What is your image of Jesus? Is he someone that is going to deal with the sin in your life in a way that is helpful and healing and restorative. We've been saying that Jesus has a ministry of release and restoration. Is he a person who's going to release you from it and restore you to how you're supposed to be? Or do you see him as someone who is just like disgusted by you and your sin? You see him as someone that you need to avoid when you recognize your unhealth and your sickness and your need to get healthy. Is he someone that you need to, you know, I need to either deny the problem because that would be bad if I had a problem, or I need to try and fix it myself. Or maybe you go to him, but you don't really listen to him. Those three approaches, none of them can uh, help up, make the doctor helpful to us. The second image Jesus uses is of the bridegroom, a groom at a wedding, in verses 33 through 39. And, and Luke, in, the, in Matthew and uh, Mark, these two stories are a little bit separated, um, but Luke uh, links them together as, to make it feel like it's one uh, one meal scene where it's like, okay, they had the meal time, and then there was this uh, 
way of having meals in the first century that then you would have a discussion time. There might be a question that's thrown out. Um, and the Pharisees don't throw out a question. They really have a statement and then an accusation, and then Jesus responds to it. So they have dinner, and then they have conversation. So verse 33 says, uh, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And fasting and prayer were uh, important uh, parts of the religious life of the uh, Jewish people in the first century. And uh, the only place that fasting is officially prescribed in the Old Testament is on the Day of Atonement. Um, But there are other occasions that fasting would take place. If you're repenting of sin, if you're mourning something, uh, or preparing for something. And the Pharisees had developed fasting into a regular uh, weekly practice. And they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And they would combine it with prayer. They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays and pray for the nation. In the Old Testament, fasting would often accompany lament and pleading to God while you're suffering. And fasting expressed dissatisfaction with the present situation, whether it's your life, whether it's how your family's acting or the nation is acting. It's expressing dissatisfaction with the present moment. It was a way of physically expressing your mood I am sad, I am grieving, I am lamenting something. Uh, things are not right here, and so I'm going to fast to show that, express with my body what I'm feeling inside. It was an important part of first century Jewish life. A lot of people did it. And in verse 34 and 35, Jesus responds first by saying, uh, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And Jesus responds to their statement with the analogy of a wedding. And a wedding feast in that day would last for seven days. Uh, can you imagine, you know, saving up money for that reception? No, that's already difficult enough. And but it would last for seven days during which fasting and difficult labor would, be not, would not be allowed. You couldn't fast during those seven days, and you couldn't do difficult labor during those seven days. And Jesus is making the point that the current time we're in is the wedding feast time. Fasting is not appropriate right now. This is the wedding feast time. It's a time of celebration. Thus, you should not fast during it. And that's why would they fast? Like, this is wedding feast time. And fasting was this sign of waiting and expressing regret and disappointment about the present time. It was a way of looking back over Israel's history and saying, things have not gone right. We've turned from God. We've sinned. We've done wrong. And now, look, the present situation we're in is because we got ourselves into it. We messed up. And so it's this way of expressing longing for we want God to come back like he promised he would. Like, we've messed this up, we've gone astray, and we want God now to come back and bring his presence back to the temple to kick out the other nations from our land, and God's kingdom will once again be on earth, as in heaven. That was the desire. Is this way of saying, I want that to happen. It's just a way of showing humility and grief over sin and longing for God's kingdom to come. But Jesus is saying, if the kingdom is present right now, It is not appropriate to fast and long for it to come. It's already here, right now, in me and what I am doing. I'm the king of this kingdom. He's not making that explicit because uh, that would get him in a lot of trouble. And he's waiting to fill in that picture until uh, later in his ministry. But he's saying, if the kingdom is present here through me, it is not time to fast. Jesus is describing the arrival of the kingdom like a wedding feast. He also acknowledges, though, the ominous reality that the bridegroom will be taken away. There will be a day when the bridegroom 
is not here anymore. So that right now it's kingdom time. Bridegroom is here, but he's going to die. And that's going to be time to fast now. He's, he's uh, established his kingdom, but has not yet come in full. And so while he is on earth, you don't fast. But between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, it is appropriate to fast to say, we're longing for you to come, Jesus, to make this world right, to bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. For right now it's not time to fast. So who is the bridegroom in the Old Testament? Well, I read Isaiah 62 at the beginning of our service, and the bridegroom was God himself. And when you read that, it's uh, God coming to his people as a husband would come uh, to his to-be wife. Uh, and it's this reversal of situations. They're in this difficult, uh, distressing situation, and God comes, and he makes a difference. He, no longer is your land going to be desolate. No longer are you going to be forsaken, but now you're going to be married to me. And marriage is one of the primary images for the relationship between God and his people. And God desires faithfulness and loyalty in the relationship. And he always remains faithful. But his people's unfaithfulness is often described as adultery. If this is a marriage, you've committed adultery if you're unfaithful to me, or prostitution. And using this image of himself as the bridegroom, Jesus is uh, putting himself forward as Israel's God coming to their people. God's supposed to be the bridegroom. And now Israel's saying, this bridegroom is here. He's putting him, saying, I am Israel's God, come in the flesh to his people. And Jesus also told them a parable, verses 36 through 39, about you get the old garment needing to be patched with a new garment, and then you get uh, the wine being put into old wineskins. And this is about, uh, the basic point is that you can't mix the new and the old. It doesn't work. If you try to mix them or use one to fix the other, it's both the new and the old will be ruined. And there's, uh, with Jesus in the Old Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament, that's the old. This is the covenant that you have, God made with you at Mount Sinai between you and the, na- the nation of Israel, God and the nation of Israel. And there is things that Jesus connects with in the Old Testament, but then there's things that go away. And so on the one hand, Luke is make, has made it clear from the first two chapters, everyone who's Here's about Jesus being born. They're singing songs about how God has fulfilled his promises to the nation of Israel. And so, on the one hand, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. And the Messiah was promised through the Old Testament. And to start his ministry, Jesus preached a sermon from Isaiah 61, saying, I'm fulfilling this today. And then before his death, he goes with his disciples. Uh, and they're thinking, wow, everything's ruined. Uh, Jesus died, I guess this whole thing is over. And then he comes back from the dead. He says, you, didn't you read the scriptures? How are you so slow to believe them? And then he goes through all the scriptures showing them how he is fulfilled. That, which would be an interesting sermon to hear. I wish we had it. Um, but in many ways we do have it. As the apostles start to work out, this is what Jesus is fulfilling in the Old Testament. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills the scriptures as Israel's promised Messiah. But on the other hand, he is bringing a new covenant. He isn't coming uh, to continue on the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he brought them out of Egypt. He's not coming to continue that. He's bringing a new covenant. It's not the Mosaic covenant. And if you try to fit what he's doing into or on top of that covenant, it's not going to work. He's saying you can't just take what I'm doing and kind of patch it onto there or kind of pour what I'm doing into those old wineskins. Like It's just not going to work. These don't work together like that. He's fulfilling it, but he's bringing a new covenant. And this covenant is completely 
uh, non-Jewish, Gentile inclusive. That was between Gentiles could join in with the nation of Israel, but you had to basically become Jewish and, and you follow those practices. But now it's being opened up uh, to everyone, uh, everywhere. And this is a covenant in which Jesus is the faithful covenant partner, fulfilling the covenant's requirements. Israel is not the covenant partner trying to fill the covenant's responsibilities. Jesus is the one. Think of a marriage covenant. Jesus can actually hold up our end of the covenant. He can be faithful and loyal to God. He came to represent us as a human being. And now he's bringing that covenant to fulfillment. And we become united to him. This covenant doesn't have a temple building. It doesn't have specially designated priests. It doesn't have animal sacrifices to make. That's no longer the way to approach God. Jesus is all of those for us. And now we are the temple of God's presence. We are a royal priesthood that we can bring each other, help each other approach God. And we offer our lives, ourselves, as a living sacrifice. And God's kingdom is no longer focused in that one physical land. But it's, God's kingdom is wherever people are surrendering to Jesus. Where they're gathered together as communities that are living out of Jesus' uh, kingdom. And you can think about the new covenant in a way of like, this marriage is just broken between Israel and God. And Jesus is renewing it. He's taking on, taking the place of Israel in the covenant to fulfill the covenant responsibilities. I'm going to be faithful and loyal to God. I'm not going to turn to temptation and sin. And Jesus acknowledges at the end, he says, no one drinking, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And Jesus is acknowledging that those who like the old wine, those who like the old way of doing things, those who like the old covenant, are going to have a hard time switching to the new. And it's a, you know, kind of a subtle way of talking to the Pharisees. Like, you guys love drinking that, the old, the old. You're going, to, you're going to keep preferring that and have a hard time turning to what is new. And even the early church had trouble moving on from the old categories of clean and unclean and Gentile exclusion. Like that's what Acts chapter 10 and 11 are about, where Peter has to have this vision of these clean and unclean animals coming down and realizing, oh, God is making salvation available to everyone, the spirit available to everyone. It's not just us, Israel, anymore. The religious teachers are shocked to see who Jesus hangs around with. These tax collectors, they're like the worst of the worst. They're like the worst of sinners. Like, tax collectors and sinners. Like, you're hanging around with these people. They're just like, flow off the tongue together. But did they forget who the heroes of their faith are? Abraham, liar, doubter, gave his wife to another woman twice. He's a coward. Jacob, cheater, liar, deceiver, selfish. Joseph's brothers, jealous, hateful, vengeful, violent, liars. David, King David, adulterer, murderer, betrayer. And when he realizes what he's done, before he realizes it's him, when the prophet Nathan comes to him, he says, whoever did this should die. David himself confesses that he should die for what he has done. And so if these Pharisees and scribes showed up at a party with these guys reclining at the table, would they say the same thing? Why? Jesus, why do you... Why are you hanging around with all these guys, these betrayers, these deceivers, these liars, these murderers, these adulterers? Why do you hang around with all these sinners? The story of Israel as a people is of God associating with crooks and liars and cheats and thieves and adulterers and murderers and scoundrels. In other words, with sinners. And God doesn't, the Pharisees are saying, why are you with those kind of people? 
And it's like God, that's the people that God is always associated with. God's presence with the people of Israel was with those kinds of people. But before we point the finger, we can, we can say, like, well, I'm so glad I'm not like those Pharisees. You know, they're so judgmental. And as soon as we do that, we're putting them in a category of people with whom God wouldn't associate. You know, I'm not like those people. Like, good thing we're not like those people. And that put, makes us show that we often forget that Jesus came for the sick and the sinful. And the religious teacher's view of God is that he does not associate with sinners like these people. God doesn't get close to them. And of course, they are right. God, but built into God's law that allowed him to dwell with the people and associate with them, the people of Israel, was built into it the sacrificial system, which was how people uh, became cleansed of their sin, could have their sins forgiven, could have it relieved from them. So now God can dwell, a holy God can dwell amidst a sinful people. God always made a way for him to associate with people like this. God's mercy and grace were built into the law, even as it showed them their sin and their uncleanness and their unworthiness. And for us, we no longer have that at the center. We have the cross at the center of Christianity that shows us God, how does God associate with people like us? We shouldn't always say, well, people, you know, like those people out there that are really bad, but people like us. And the cross shows us that this is God pouring out his love, but also fulfilling his own requirement for justice uh, because of what we've done in rebellion against him. And the cross is the story, you know, Jesus going to the cross is a story of betrayal and denial and abandonment and injustice and cowardice and apathy and ambition and self-protection and self-righteousness and arrogance and pride and stubbornness. When you read that story of how Jesus goes to the cross, that's what that story is about. And the, that's the way the world does things, is those things, injustice, apathy, self-protection. And it, where it ends with Jesus is where it would end with us if we didn't trust in him. And his end is ugly and it's embarrassing, it's disgusting, it's shameful. And that's where it would end for us. It's either us on the cross or him on the cross. And that's what God gives us, is this choice of, you can either come to me for what you need to be free from your sin, or you can try to do it yourself, and you're going to end up there where Jesus was, where he was dying in your place. And if there's an idea that I would sum up this passage with, or that I want us to remember, is that Jesus is safe for sinners who turn to him. Jesus is safe for sinners who turn to him. So let me ask, what is your primary image of Jesus? Do you think this statement is true, that Jesus is safe for you when you're sinning, when you're failing, when you're messing up, when the last thing you want to do is obey him or do what he's asking of you? Is he safe for you? What does he do with your sin? What does he do with your failures and your weakness and your neediness? What do you think he's like? How does he feel about you in the moment when you are sinning? And these two images of Jesus, the physician and the bridegroom, tell us a lot about him. Well, the physician tells us, what does he do with our sin? He heals it. He takes it away. He forgives us. He's the only one who can free us from it. That's what we see is the one picture. And even when things are hard, when he disciplines us, well, that's like physical therapy. It's like, you're in a rough spot, and I need to do things to help you get out of this spot. So Jesus is at once the physician or the doctor, and he's also the bridegroom. Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
Do you believe that? That as his church, and as one of his children, that God rejoices over you? Does Jesus rejoice over you? Do you think he ever is happy with you? Or that he enjoys you, or delights in you, and treasures you? You know, we turn to Ephesians 5.22-30. One of the best passages on this, this theme the Apostle Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So what do you think Jesus does when you bring your sin to him? Does he... Did he love you and give himself up to you that he might sanctify you and cleanse you by the washing of water with the words that he might present you to himself in splendor? Jesus is the one who makes us you know, splendid. You know, being, I know it might be kind of weird to think of yourself dressed in a you know, white wedding dress, but you know, think of yourself dressed in white. It's like, oh no, I've got to clean all these stains off this before I can come to Jesus. No, Jesus says he died for us and gave himself for us so he can present us to himself without blemish. He takes the stain of sin away from us. And then I just love verse 29, that we're one, you know, the two shall become one, one flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Do you think Jesus nourishes you and cherishes you? Do you think he does that? We can have one of four responses to our spiritual health problems. We can deny there's a problem, never go to the doctor. We can try to solve it ourselves and never go to the doctor. Or we can go to the doctor, but don't do what the doctor says. None of these will benefit from Jesus, our physician, who is healing us of these things. So what do you do with your sin, with your brokenness? Which one of these are you? Do you deny it? Do you try to do it yourself? Do you go but don't listen? Or do you go to him and feel safe in his presence? You know, is it safe for sinners to be in Jesus' presence. And I honestly try to solve it myself a lot. Okay, what do I need to do to get better? What do I need to do to get out of this? So what do I need to read? Or what do I need to figure out? Like, this is up to me to do this. I take the second approach, trying to figure it out myself. It's a self-improvement plan. But the, the primary requirement for being loved, healed, embraced, forgiven, and accepted by Jesus is bringing our need to him. Is opening ourselves up to him and saying, I'm a mess. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I need you. You know, sinners are the only people Jesus heals. Sinners are the only people Jesus saves. And as long as we're trying to deny that we are sinners and we don't need anybody else, he cannot save us and he cannot heal us. We have to come to him. We come with our need and he meets us with his grace, mercy, kindness, tenderness, compassion, gentleness, patience, and love. We come with our need and he meets us with his power and authority to take care of it. It's something that God, I'm trying to learn recently, is there's a difference between health, being healthy and being perfect. 
And I try to focus on, you know, if I could just do everything right, then I'd be good. But I don't need to be perfect in order to be healthy. Healthy is turning to Jesus as the one who can take care of it, and not depending on myself, not looking for my righteousness, my abilities, but turning to Him. And I can be healthy from the doctor, even when I'm not perfect, because I'm bringing my sin, sin to Him, and He's working with me. I just want to share with you, you might be thinking, how do I get this view of God? And uh, I found this book, it's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Um, probably one of the top five or top ten books I've read in my life. It came out last year. And I'd recommend it to you if you're like, how can I do this? We need to, what we need to do is let God redefine what we think he is like. And I want to share with you this um, image that he's talking about a doctor. And so this is what would be what Jesus is like. You know, a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. How much more if the diseased are not strangers, but his own family? And so we can think, well, it shouldn't bother the doctor. But what did Jesus come to do? He came as a doctor to heal and there couldn't be anything better that he would want than, would sick people please come to me so I can help them, so I can heal them, so I can treat them, diagnose them, that we should not uh, stay far from him. And then another quote later is that this passage is like this of what God Jesus the name friend of sinners. It says this, What does it mean that Christ is a friend to sinners? At the very least, it means that he enjoys spending time with them. It also means that they feel welcome and comfortable around him. Notice the passing line that starts off a series of parables in Luke. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The very two groups of people whom Jesus is accused of befriending are those who can't stay away from him in Luke 15. They're at ease around him. They sense something different about him. Others hold him at arm's length, but Jesus offers the enticing intrigue of fresh hope. What he is really doing at bottom is pulling them into his heart. And so we see that Jesus came to associate with people like us. People who are messed up and broken and sinful and do things wrong and wander astray. And God says, I'm coming for those people. And Jesus says, I'm God coming uh, to fulfill what God said. We can take off our mask with Jesus. We can let him really see the real us. We can be at ease and comfortable. It's not like we're tricking him anyway. Uh, so we don't have to try to pretend we're better than we are or perform and show him, you know, I deserve this. But Jesus is safe for sinners who turn to him. As we learn to take off our mask with God, uh, we can learn to take off our mask with each other. And as we get have this view of God changing us, we now become safe people for sinners like, like us and like other people who need him. And so I just want to re-say what we've been saying. Jesus is safe for sinners. Turn in.
Let's pray. God, would you let us really believe that? We know that your spirit is the only person in this room who can change our hearts and to see you as you truly are. Would you let us see the safety, the comfort, uh, the security in your presence that we can have, that you not turn us away when we come to you with our issues, our brokenness, our sin. This is what we pray. Amen.